You are listening to the Compliance Conversations podcast by Healthicity. If you work in the healthcare industry, you know how crucial compliance is to your bottom line, your reputation, and the success of your organization as a whole. If this is your first time listening, welcome. A transcript of every Compliance Conversations episode can be found at www.healthicity.com slash resources, along with a ton of other thought leadership materials. You can add us to your RSS feed and iTunes, or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Now, let's get on with the show. Compliance Conversations is sponsored by Healthicity. Healthicity designs software and services that simplify compliance and auditing challenges that reduce your risk and save you money. Where others see complexity, we see simplicity. For more information, visit healthicity.com. Welcome, everybody. This is CJ Wolf with Healthicity, and I welcome you to another episode of Compliance Conversations. Today, we have a, a wonderful guest, a good friend of mine, Jay McVeigh from Texas. How are you doing, Jay? I'm good, CJ. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, Jay, I know you're an interesting guy, and I know a lot about you, but I'd like you to introduce yourself a little bit to our guests. Maybe tell us a little bit about uh, where you're from, what you're doing, maybe a little bit about your compliance career and, and what you're doing today. Sure, yeah. Um, so I, I live in Houston, Texas. Um, work currently at the University of Texas Health Science Center here in Houston as the director of medical school billing compliance. Um, we have a medical school we have a dental school. We have a school of nursing. Uh, we have a school of public health. Um, prior to that, I worked at the uh, University of Texas at MD Anderson Cancer Center with you, um, where you kind of introduced me into this whole compliance world and got me started down this career path. Um, prior to that, I worked for several different organizations, uh, private physicians, uh, worked for some organizations doing um, insurance verification, coding, billing. So, you know, I've had my hand in just a little bit about a, every side of healthcare you could possibly think of other than patient care. Yeah, that's right. And um, as you mentioned, you and I had some good times at uh, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And, um, you know, I know you've you've done well for yourself even since then. And um, that's why I thought, you know, Jay would be able to answer some really good questions about coding and billing compliance. So I'm, I'm glad well, you I'm were sure willing. We'll try. Yeah, I'm glad you were willing. Um <laughs> You know, as I was thinking about some of the things I would a- I would ask, because I've you know I've been doing a lot of general compliance uh, since the time you and I worked together, and you know at the time you and I were working together, we focused and we kind of had at the top of our heads and the tip of our tongues all the regulations and all the rules. You've probably kept all that. I've um, though I'm still involved in coding and billing quite a bit. I you know it's not something I do every single day and so I, I really appreciate your expertise. The first thing I wanted to ask you though is you know you you interact with a lot of probably other medical school compliance folks, um, maybe academic medical centers and I'm kind of curious what you, if you had to say what the biggest coding and billing compliance issues in that area, you know, medical school faculty, academic medical centers, what are those biggest issues today? Yeah, so I think um, not only within our organization, but, you know, across other medical school campuses that, that I deal with, you know, as compliance officers, I think one of the things that one of the biggest challenges we face um, in this ever-growing clinical world is, is you know, our, our teaching physicians really understanding who they're working with. And, and I know you and I have had this conversation before, and we've actually even presented on this topic before, but right. it still continues to be a huge driver, you know, when, um, you know, we're hiring more 
uh, NPs and PAs to help with the clinic workload, but yet the, the physicians also have a resident or even a medical student, sometimes a fellow, rounding with them either in the clinic or in the hospital setting. Um, you know, and then various people are touching the notes, um, documenting portions of the visit. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, a lot of times the physicians are just really confused of, well, do I have a TPA situation um, or is this a shared split visit if I'm in the hospital? And do, how much of the note do I have to document versus maybe an NP or a PA? Um, so, you know, that, that continues to be you know, something that we struggle with, um, you know, because of the productivity, that, the requirements that the physicians face. Um, you know, wanting to see more patients, wanting to help more folks out, um, but yet still be compliant with their notes and getting their notes done. And, and then what type of attestation do they need to have? Um, you know, is it a teaching physician attestation? Is it uh, no attestation at all because they're working with a mid-level? Do they have a scribe working with them? Um, so it, it, the clinical room has become very congested and crowded. Um, and sometimes it leaves the physicians often wondering, you know, what do I do? Who am I with? And and really kind of trickles down to a, a documentation and compliance concern overall. Yeah, it's just like operationally, like you're saying, it, it the clinical environment's becoming more crowded and complex. Um, like you said, nurse practitioners and uh, PAs are being asked to do more and more, right? And, and, and especially in teaching settings, and you get residents and, and med students, like you said. Uh, Jay mentioned that he and I had presented... Um, I was that in San Diego just, I think, last October at the HCCA's, yep. they call it the Clinical uh, Compliance Conference. So it's kind of geared around kind of these professional type of topics. And we, we presented on um, teaching physician rules and all that. And if you actually, if you go to the HCCA's website and you find past conferences, you can get that handout uh, if you're interested. Um, yeah, you know, that's a, that is a big thing. And I've even seen, I don't know if you see this, where docs have those different type of uh, assistants, even in the same, like going from one visit to the next. So <laughs> I've been in a scenario where they're working with a resident on this side of the hall and they might have a medical student on the other side of the hall. And, you know, they're going back Definitely. and forth between patients. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and sometimes the medical students present to the attendings and sometimes they don't. Um, you know, it can just, it, it just varies from clinic to clinic from, you know, whether it's a, a surgical uh, unit versus just a primary care, um, you know, whether you're working under the primary care exception or not. So it, it can be, uh, you know, extremely confusing and, and which, you know, kind of leads to kind of my next point is, is simply just the actual completion of the note. Yeah. Um, oftentimes we go in to audit a provider um, and we pull a note and the note looks complete, but we get to the end of the note and the billing provider might not have signed the note or didn't put a teaching physician attestation. And so then when we go back and we meet with that provider, they're like, wow, I didn't even know I had a note out there that wasn't complete or I didn't realize I hadn't signed it because so many people are touching the note yeah. that oftentimes the doc who actually his name is on the claim, they get overlooked in the whole process, yeah. you know? Yeah. So with those challenges, have you found anything that works well or not works or doesn't work well in trying to solve it? Is it basically you just do education and you're trying to teach the physicians or are there mechanics and, and things you can put in place that you've seen work? Yeah, we've done both. Um, uh, you know, uh, as you know, you know, back in our days of MD Anderson, just sitting in front of them with their own documentation in front of them and, and showings uh, oftentimes has 
the biggest impact or the most benefit. Um, but we have put things into our electronic EMR flags, uh, things that would alert to the doctor every time they log in of how many notes they have that are not complete or, you know, if they have any pending tasks and things like that. So yeah. we've kind of tried to tackle it from a two-front approach, you know, education, get in front of them, show them their actual notes, um, and then also, you know, do some things, you know, electronically through the EMR to, to assist them and help them with that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, so given that, I mean, that sounds like a monumental task getting in front of the docs. How many providers do you have that you're kind of responsible for, both physicians and, you know, maybe PAs and all of those? Yeah, so my group, um, we currently, there's, I have a team of six auditors, and we are looking at um, upwards of around 1,500-plus providers, billing providers. And that could be, you know, like you said, MDs, PAs, NPs. We've now got uh, clinical dietitians, social workers. Wow. Um, you know, all kinds of varieties of different avenues that we're, we're auditing and reviewing now. Yeah, so kind of on that auditing and reviewing, you know, I as the director, you're overseeing it all, but what are some best practices in those auditing metrics? Like when it comes to performing the actual coding or billing audits, like how many encounters do you do? How frequently, you know, when do you do things that are random versus no, I'm going to focus in on high risk areas and, and do kind of focused reviews of certain types of claims or codes. Can you talk to us a little bit about kind of best metrics and practices in auditing? Sure. Yeah. So currently, you know, uh, we still do our random snapshot audits of every provider um, across the practice plan. Um, and we try to do those on at least a biannual basis. Um, okay. you know, and it, it also depends on, you know, the, the results of the audit. If the provider did well, then we may push them out a couple of years. If they didn't do so well on the audit, we may review them again the next quarter. Um, but we've kept that kind of uh, structure in place currently, um, simply because our leadership here likes the, the, the comfort that they get from knowing that each one of our providers are being looked at on a regular basis. However, oh, gotcha. we have started to shift a lot of our focus over to risk-based audits um, and really you know, drilling down into not only areas of risk that we've identified here internally, but also areas of risk that the OIG and, and our MACs and our RACs and those folks have also said are potential areas of risk. So every year in our, in our compliance plan, we try to carve out uh, and go in and look at what are the highest ranking or, or what are the, the things on the OIG work list that would impact our, our organization? What do we feel are some risks that we've currently already identified that we need to look at? Um, and so we're kind of doing a hybrid model between the snapshot 10, 10 case encounters with the risk-based audits um, uh, mixed in there. Gotcha. Um, and and it, it's working well. Um, simply from the fact that we still are able to give providers individual feedback on their own reviews. Right. Um, but also we can go back to our executive leadership and say, hey, you know, this was a risk that was identified on the OIG work list, and here's how we organizationally are doing with this risk. Either we're doing well or we're not doing well, you know, and then what steps are we going to put in place to, to rectify it if we're not doing well? Um, so from a organizational standpoint, when you report up through an executive compliance committee and things like that, it really gives your program a little bit more robustness. And, and we feel it, it kind of shows them that, hey, 
not only can we do those 10, 10, 10 review, 10 case reviews, snapshot audits, but we do have the capabilities of going in and really drilling down into a specific issue and looking at a, a larger universe of claims and making sure that those are done correctly as well. Yeah. You know, you mentioned like looking at OIG stuff, like I, I kind of keep my finger uh, on the pulse of kind of national reports that I see. So like I've, re- I've blogged about a couple different types um, HBO therapy, which is hyperbaric oxygen therapy. I've seen the OIG um, publish two audits on those recently. Uh, and IMRT, intensity, intensity modulated radiation therapy, um, is another one that they've published a couple reports on. So from a national perspective, I think, you know, those might be two you drill down on. But could you maybe comment on what are you seeing locally? Like what specific types of services do you think are kind of higher risk um, maybe in your region or for your Mac? Or yeah, right now here in, here in our area, um, you know, and, it, and thank goodness it doesn't really pertain too heavily to us, but um, I would say DME is still a huge um, issue in the, in the Houston marketplace, um, gotcha. um, as well as ambulances, ambulance companies um, billing for false, you know, yeah. uh, you know, deliveries of patients and things that never occurred. Um, you know, I, I think one of the stats I've heard recently is we have more ambulances in the city of Houston than we do taxi cabs. Um, <laughs> so there are a lot of individual taxi or uh, ambulance companies out there that are doing things yeah. not always on the up and up. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, and, and, you know, one of the other unique challenges that we have here at our organization is that we don't own our own hospital. Um, we staff a couple of the hospitals here within Houston, but we don't actually bill the facility charges or have to worry with some of those bigger facility ticket items gotcha. um, that, that other organizations would have to. We, we have a huge practice plan um, where we're dealing, you know, ideally billing mostly E&M type visits right. um, with some proced- outpatient procedures and, you know, testing and things like that. But when you get into things like IMRT and, and you know, those type of things, those services don't really pertain to what we do here in our organization. Gotcha. But you have every physician specialty under the sun probably, right? Absolutely. Yeah. We, we cover, we cover from one end of the rainbow to the other. Yeah. Interesting. So let me ask you this. Um, so let's say, you, you know, we talked about auditing metrics and that sort of thing, you know, doing your, your standard uh, audits for every doc, um, also risk-based. Now, let's say you've identified one or two, or I don't know, there's maybe a few that are kind of regularly failing these coding or billing audits. What, what have you found that works well, as well as what doesn't work when you're trying to help those providers that you've identified as, as potentially failing? Yeah, what, what I've found is it really boils down to physician leadership within the department and how much of an emphasis they place on compliance. Yeah. Um, if they have a strong leadership within their department and we notify you know, a department chair that a particular provider has not done well on a review and we go and educate that um, provider, if that, if that department has strong leadership, typically those, those problems get corrected and rectified pretty quickly. Gotcha. Um, in areas where there's not such strong leadership, um, you know, and physicians that really, you know, push the compliance factor, um, oftentimes we see those as our repeat offenders and the ones who we have to keep going back and educating and teaching and training and right. getting face-to-face meetings with and, 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 and showing them their, where they've gone wrong or what their documentation is missing and, 
you know, uh, so it really, you know, not only at our organization, but as I talk to other folks within the academic world, um, physician leadership and, and, and physician-driven um, compliance is, is a really valuable tool. Um, you know, if you've got those physicians that are well-respected and, and they really push compliance and, and, and they talk to their more junior faculty about things like that, um, it really, it really goes a long way. Yeah, but you know, we're getting kind of close to the end of our time. But I wanted to kind of ask a follow up on that. Is tell me a little bit. And I know this was big when when you and I worked together. That relationship building, um, you know, and getting physicians to trust you. What have you found that works well, or that you know you fell flat on your face? It's like, no, I'm not going to do that approach again. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think, you know, you, you hit the nail on the head. It, it's all about relationships. Um, you know, my team and I, we approach physicians as if we're in a customer service business where we're, we are trying to help them. Um, you know, we want them to see us as a resource. We're not someone that's going to get them in trouble. Um, we make it a, a, quite a, a, a good point to make sure that physicians understand that we're not the compliance police. We're right. actually here to help them and keep them out of trouble with the government and to keep our organization out of trouble. And, and it's really all about how you, you know, when we email a provider to meet with them, um, we make sure we use the words review versus audit. Because oftentimes when we, you know, it's been my experience that when I use the word audit, um, automatically the defenses go up and they think they're in some sort of an IRS audit and that they're in some sort of deep trouble. Right. And it can be um, a little bit challenging either to one, schedule a meeting or two, when you walk in there, you can't be walking into a buzzsaw with some of these guys. So yeah. if you approach it from an angle of, hey, I'm here to help you, I'm here to teach you, I'm here to work with you. Um, you know, CJ, as you know, I've done everything from going in round in clinics with providers to better understand what it is that they're doing because the coding rules don't always match up well with the clinical situations and the clinical scenarios. So right. sometimes you just got to put your boots on the ground, go in there shoulder to shoulder with them, and really watch what they're doing, and then go back and explain, you know, teach them. Okay, here's what you're doing. Here's what the rules say you have to do. How do we make these work together um, for clinical flow, for operational flow, so they can still see the maximum number of patients that they would need to see per day. Patient quality is still there, but yet we're meeting all of our documentation and billing compliance. Uh, guidelines and criteria. So, yeah. you know, I found that that's, that's been the best approach is just to, to get, get in there and say, hey, guys, I understand. Doc, I understand what you're going through. Let me see what I can do to help you. If you, if you put yourself in their shoes, oftentimes it's been my experience that they respect you more and they'll want to work with you more as opposed to fighting against you and saying, oh, these rules are just stupid and why do I have to follow them? Yeah. It, you know, kind of the mantra of seek first to understand and then to be understood yourself. So, um, like Absolutely. you said, put yourself in their shoes. E even if you think you already know the answer, I think that's just good relationship building is when they can feel and sense that you're willing to look at their perspective first before you offer your solution. They, you know, they got to feel like they're heard. Um, and then you can, you can share what you're going to do, even if you kind of already know what the result's going to be. Um, and I, you and I kind of learned that, and you know, I, I, that's kind of why I'm asking the question is because I think it's still a truth that we all have to to pay attention to, and um, I'm glad you're kind of reiterating that. And um, you know, this time has just flown by. Really appreciate your insight, Jay. Um, and no problem. 
appreciate your your willingness to be on the, the podcast. Um, maybe we could have you on as a guest again, and I'm sure you and I will maybe present again at other conferences. So uh, thank you so much. Thank you, CJ. Appreciate the invite, and absolutely, anytime you want to talk about this, I'm more than willing. Awesome. And thank you all of our listeners for listening to another episode of Compliance Conversations. This is CJ Wolf signing off. Until next time, have a great day. Compliance Conversations is sponsored by Healthicity. Healthicity designs software and services that simplify compliance and auditing challenges that reduce your risk and save you money. Where others see complexity, we see simplicity. For more information, visit healthicity.com.